I would invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for preserving it. Thank you that you've promised the teacher, the illuminator, the spirit, the author of your word uh, to give us an understanding. And so may each and every one of us at our point of spiritual need be met by, by him and that the word would be applied to us, be it under salvation, be it under to uh, renewal, whatever it may be. Find us pliable in your hands. Find us open to the movement of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we've uh, come to Romans chapter 5, and we've been in it for a few weeks, and we have a few more weeks uh, to go in this chapter. Um, The overall purpose of Romans 5 is that of a bridge. It serves as a bridge Uh, All that came before, chapters 1 through 4, and all that will come afterwards. Um, We see this bridge being uh, laid through the foundations of three therefores. Three therefores. There is the therefore of verse 1. There is the therefore of verse 12. And then there is the therefore of verse 18. And each one of them are building up on each other and showing us what uh, happened prior to the need to be justified, then being justified, and then what the justified life looks like in chapters 6, 7, and 8. In chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Romans is the substance. It is the, it is the very meat of the, of the letter. It teaches us practical theology. As we saw in the ABF hour of Sinclair Ferguson teaching uh, via the Ligonier series we've been doing about unity in Christ, is that Romans chapter 6 is one of the most important chapters to live out our union in Christ, which is our justification and our righteousness. And so if you look back where we've gone, chapters 1 up up through 4, we would see that it's about identity, identity, and in particular, uh, what we are in Adam. Chapter 1, verse 18, uh, would summarize what every one of us are in Adam, apart from Christ, where Paul would say, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is our nature, ungodly, and that is our practice, unrighteous. 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that is every single person outside of Jesus Christ. The religious person or not, all of us in Adam. So chapters 1 through 4 will teach us about our identity in Adam. And then we find in chapter 4, he shifts over to Abraham and it begins our identity of what it means to be in Christ. In Christ. And that will carry over, as I mentioned, in chapter 5. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, he would say of Abraham, his wages are not counted as a gift but as a due, but Abraham believed in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So we see then this is all about identity. And in chapter 5, Paul would bore down even more so and show us in the first therefore, verses 1 all the way through verse 11, the assurances we have by our union in Christ. And the assurances is largely rooted in the fact that we are greatly loved. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he would say that God has shed abroad or poured in our hearts the love of God. And then in verse 8 of 5, he would say, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then we entered into the second therefore of verse 12 last week, and we talked about what it was to be in Adam. And it wasn't a very encouraging message. Uh, In Adam, there is no hope. In Adam, there is no light. And Paul would emphasize in Adam is sin. In Adam is the consequence of sin, which is death. And he would tell us in very detailed accounts that this was imputed to us. Hence, we're sinners. We are under condemnation not only by our acts, but by being in Adam passed down to us. Today we move into uh, verse 15 and the second part of the second there uh, for, and that is our identity in Christ, our identity in Christ. And we will see quite a contrast, quite a contrast. And we read uh, all the way through verse 17. I won't read that again. But as you look at this section in these three verses, 15, 16, and 17, you'll find that there are repeated words or repeated concepts in here. And it's always important when you see repetition, especially in a short, uh, a short space, the importance of that. The free gift, the free gift appears five times. Trespass also appears five times. And grace appears three times. And so what you see is Paul is setting up, there's really a battlefield. There's the battlefield of in Adam, the trespasses, against the free gift in Christ, and the tiebreaker or the difference breaker is the grace of God. The grace of God. And this contrast in verses 15 uh, through 17, or I should say 12 through 17, the contrast is death and condemnation in Adam, life, justification, and righteousness in Christ. Disobedience in Adam, obedience in Christ. Universal ruin of humanity in Adam, reconciliation of the elect in Christ. And so in a very real way, you can, you can affirm your salvation by seeing the contrast that Paul makes in the two humanities of Adam and Christ. You can see that in your own life. You can look in your own life and you should be able to see 
that yes, I was in Adam. Yes, I was under condemnation. Yes, I was disobedient. Yes, I was ruined. And then you can look at your life and see you're in the new humanity in Christ. And you can see justification. You can see righteousness. You can see life. You can see the desire within you to obey. And you can also see the great truth of reconciliation. But as I was looking through this, and it would be so easy just to march our way through this. And we are. I mean, we've only been, we've gone through pretty quickly. This is our 29th week in Romans. That wasn't funny. I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 400 sermons on Romans. Uh, Dr. James Boyce, 425. I'm, I'm neither of them. But the point is, is I don't want us to miss extremely important truths. Because Romans was not only the foundational uh, book of the Reformation. It also is the foundational book of solid churches. As well as solid Christians. And so as we, as we march our way through this, and I came to verse 15... And you'll note there are four words, arguably the four greatest words in the Bible, the grace of God, the grace of God. And I want us to consider the grace of God today. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one's men's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You go further on through here, and you're going to see in verse 17, there is the mention of the abundance of God's grace. And then in verse 20, you'll see grace abounding. And then also in verse 21, you'll see grace conquering. So grace is, is just, is just un, unfolding in, in panoramic beauty in this section of Romans. And I think it's important that we consider the grace of God. And all of you who are Christians today, you know of the grace of God. I know of the grace of God. But the question I ask myself, as I now ask you, what do you know of the grace of God beyond salvation? What do you know of the grace of God in the practical application in the Christian, living, in the Christian life? If you recall last week, I mentioned that I believe, in generally speaking, in the evangelical world, is that we have downplayed the significance and the heinous nature of sin. Is we've lost, we've lost how serious sin is. Even as Christians here, we may have lost sight of the heinous nature of sin. What happened in the Garden of Eden was not just a mistake. It was a catastrophic rupture of a relationship. And if we have any hope of marveling over the gospel, then we must see how bad sin is. But I also mentioned last week uh, that we don't have a proper view of death. Is that death has been softened in our culture. And the church has even softened death. Death is not just they passed away. Death is a murderer. Death is an enemy. Death is a robber. Death is a thief. Death is mean. Well, as I was thinking about the grace of God, and I thought about my own life, and then my general assessment of what I see in Christendom, 
I believe we need to recover the marvel and the wonder of God's grace. As much as we need to see how bad sin is, and as much as we need to see, you know, how, how wicked death is, we also need to recover how marvelous grace is. We need to be in awe of amazing grace. We need to have the same type of being overwhelmed, perhaps, that John Newton had when he penned amazing grace. And so what I want us to look at is those four words, the grace of God. In verse 15. Now as this unfolds in the next couple weeks. Verse 16, 17 and ongoing. You will see that the grace of God produces amazing things. But if you look at it in verse 15. It says much more have the grace of God and. It's actually you can look at the grace of God mentioned here. And you see that as an umbrella. From which will flow from the grace of God. Is the gift of Jesus Christ. The gift of righteousness. The gift of justification. And yes, Paul is connecting the grace of God to all those. But let us not forget that the grace of God is far more than all those. As important as those things are, I need, you need to understand the grace of God beyond just being saved. Beyond just knowing that Christ died for you. We cannot overstate our need for a deeper understanding of the grace of God in our lives. And that's one of the dangers as a Christian. The more that you go as a Christian, the easier it is to lose the wow over what God has done. The more that you go as a Christian... And the more that you even gain knowledge, isn't it interesting that Peter would say at closing out his second letter that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so my goal for us is that perhaps God would wow us again over just how amazing grace truly is. The four greatest words in the Bible, the grace of God. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, he wrote, he, he, he wrote quote, The grace of God is one of the most important subjects in all of Scripture. At the same time, it is probably one of the least understood. When we think of grace, we almost always think of being saved by grace. That is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is so familiar to us. But the Bible teaches we are not only saved by grace, but we also live by grace every day of our lives. It is this important aspect of grace that seems to be so little understood or practiced by Christians, end quote. So may God help us to get a better grasp of how amazing and how practical those four words are, the grace of God, because that's how Paul would start. He would start out with the grace of God, connecting that to the grace of God as the free gift of Jesus Christ, the grace of God and the free gift of justification, and the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness. And as if you were to do a study of those words, the grace of God, those four, you will find it appears 19 times in the New Testament in 18 verses. I was, I was amazed. The, the grace of God, 19 times in 18 verses in ESV, 21 times in 20 verses in the NAS, 24 times in 23 verses in the King James. 
And my thought was, why does God preserve in his book this repetition and this a, a huge amount of repetition to the four words, the grace of God? And I think for two reasons. The first one is to remind us of the emphasis that he places upon his grace. The emphasis he places upon his grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, Paul would unfold the wonders of redemption, of electing grace. He would say, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do we understand that? Is it God from eternity um, past? He, he lays out the plan of redemption, this Trinitarian plan of redemption, and is to culminate unto the praise of his glorious grace. And so it's no wonder that God would place so much emphasis on his grace in his word. And so it begs the question to us, do we place as much emphasis on the grace of God in our lives beyond salvation? And so then we have God placing the emphasis of his grace by the amount of repetition that he brings in his word. Um, the, and the second, and I've alluded to this a few times, is that the reason why this is so dominant is that Paul will unfold this more in Romans, but that the grace of God goes beyond just salvation. And I'm fearful that we kind of truncate the gospel. We kind of shortchange the gospel is that we don't understand that the gospel is this huge treasure chest. And that where Paul would say God has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings, is that this treasure chest of the gospel, we've barely opened it up. And all we see is the wonders of salvation and praise God. But there are jewels deeper in the chest. There are so, there's so much to understand about the gospel and so much to understand about the amazing grace of God that not only saves us, but does some other things which we'll look at this morning. Well, let's kind of break it down a little bit, the grace of God. The grace of God. Theologians have long mentioned that um, there are two types of grace, and you won't find these listed by name in the Scripture. For instance, common grace. They say that, uh, that God exhibits common grace. And we all would agree that common grace flows from the God of all grace. Common grace is such that God dispenses upon all creatures, saved and unsaved, his goodness. He causes his son to rise upon the fields of the evil and the good. He sends his rain upon the just and the unjust. He gives every man life, health, strength. And also includes the moral good. The moral good not specific to believers or unbelievers. To include natural wisdom and prudence. And I think a great example is, what, as is how I grew up. I grew up in a little town, as you know, in West Virginia that was like Mayberry. And I've told you that Barney Fife was on the police force in my town. And that town, and a lot of our friends, I'm a first-generation Christian, and I grew up in a town that had a lot of God-fearing people who were not saved. That is the common grace of God upon a culture. Look at our nation 
uh, before 1960, look at our nation. They had a Judeo-Christian principle that governed us. Though we weren't Christian, we had that. That's common grace. But there's a second type of grace that the theologians would identify and the Bible would teach, and that is a saving grace. Saving grace is God bestowing upon His elect saving faith in His Son that leads to justification, redemption, reconciliation, and the wonderful grace gift of adoption. So there's two types of grace as we read about the grace of God. I think of William Plummer. He was a very effective 19th century Southern Presbyterian. He, uh, he def- defined grace as this. Quote, the New Testament means to show favor, unmerited kindness, undeserved love, unbought pity, a gift, mere gratuity, end quote. And so what I want us to look at today is I want us to look, and you can follow around and follow in your outline. I want us to take the grace of God that Paul mentions in verse 15. We won't go any further. We're going to break down 16 and 17 and look at the gifts of what grace has done in Christ under justification and righteousness. But I think it's very important that we use that as a launching pad so that we can, once again, perhaps, need to be ignited in how wonderful grace is. And so we'll look at five things. Five things. Of those 19 references I told you about of the grace of God in the New Testament, we're going to look at five. Five. And may God help us to recover not only the nature, the heinous nature of sin and the seriousness of death, but that he may inflame our hearts with a wonderful amazement of what grace is. And the first one is this. If you want to follow me, you can. I, I, I won't promise you that I won't read fast, so you may not be able to ca- ca- uh, follow. But look at Acts chapter 11. And this is, this is a topical, in a sense, it's coming out of this, but it's so critical that we don't lose sight of what the grace of God is beyond salvation. I'm being redundant in saying that because I need to be redundant to say that in my, own, in my own experience because I easily lose the wonder of grace. And so do you. And we need to see that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is not the only application of grace. And the first one is this, that the grace of God produces visible fruit of changed lives. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And you're going to find the phrase, the four words, the grace of God in every one of these references. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, what did he do? He saw what? The grace of God. He saw the grace of God. And he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is a significant movement in church history. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Multicultural. And the gospel was being preached, and it made inroads. 
So much so that the word gets back to the church in Jerusalem. And they want to know what's going on. What is happening up there? And so what do they do? They send Barnabas. How fitting to send Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to a bunch of new believers. And what would Barnabas do? He went up there to exhort them to be faithful to the things of God. But what did he see when he got there? And the, and the, and, and the, message, the report when he got back, what did he see? He said, I saw the grace of God. Now, the grace of God is not something you see. It's the effect of the grace of God that you see. And what was the effect in Antioch of the grace of God? Changed lives. Changed lives. It says, great number who believe turn to the Lord. Friends, we should always be looking among us for the working of God's grace in changing lives. It's so easy to look around of what's wrong because there's enough. How about let's look around like Barnabas and see all the good. And what is the good that was happening here? It was the marvelous grace of God that came under the preached word of Jesus Christ and it was changing lives right and left is that it could not be contained. What a wonderful testimony that would be for us to have that people have to come from South Kingston or Coventry or wherever. Something's happening there. Something's happening there. What lives are being changed? And it's not that we would brag about great programs. We're not into that. But like Barnabas, he was glad. Why? Because he saw the grace of God. Here's an application for each and every one of you. And for me as well. Don't forget what the grace of God has done to you. The grace of God saved you. But the grace of God is what transforms you. It's what changes you. And the impact of our witness in our families and in our churches and in our communities will certainly be our proclamation of the gospel, but it won't be on how well and how much we know about the gospel. It will be the impact of changed lives that we are given testimony to in the culture. Why do people, why do people when Peter says Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you when they ask. Why would they ask? Maybe they've seen the grace of God, like Barnabas. Maybe they've seen changes because your family is not like other families. And I'm not talking about being religious zealots. I'm talking about changed lives because of the grace of God. And there's your neighbors whose lives are crushed, who are afraid, who are uncertain in a very uncertain world they're looking for they're looking for substance they're looking for something to believe and we have the grace of God that not only saves us but has changed us never lose sight of the grace of God that changed you one of the greatest aspects of your testimony will be your changed lives that's why I'm envious of new believers because new, new believers still have this influence of a lot of unsaved people around them and one of the things is you, as a Christian, that you grow in, uh, you end up having the danger you face is that you become a subculture in the culture. Is that as you grow in grace, as you grow in maturity, it's very easy to find that everything in your life is Christian. You Christian friends, you know, 
your, your Christian groups, you never have interaction. You never have the influence on the unsaved of changed lives. Now, I'm not saying compromise, but what I am saying is this, is that Jesus calls us and prays that we will be separate from the world. He never calls us to be isolated from the world. There's a difference. There's a difference. And so Paul, Paul would, would tell us about this wonderful grace of God. And the grace of God came to Antioch because of the preaching of the word, the preaching of the Lord Jesus, and their lives were changed. And the excitement starts to spill over. It gets back to Jerusalem. And the church is saying, we need to go know what's happening. And Barnabas comes up there. And, and Barnabas is off the scale, full of gladness, because he sees the grace of God. Friends, don't lose sight of what God's grace has done to you. Occasionally go back and marvel of what you were in Adam, as we saw in Romans 5 early. Go back and look how God took you when you were in Adam and placed you in Christ and start singing Amazing Grace to Him. Get you a hymn book or maybe your phone or whatever you do and just start singing with John Newton Amazing Grace. Do that every, every once in a while. It'll keep your heart aflame. It'll keep you aflamed of the grace of God that produced visible fruit in your lives. Well, what else about the grace of God beyond salvation? Look at Acts chapter 14, just a couple chapters over. Is the grace of God not only produces visible, visible changes in life, but the grace of God empowers. It empowers word-central ministry or word-based ministry. Acts chapter 14, verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commend, commended to the grace of God. Now don't lose sight of that. Verse 26 drives us back to Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas had been sent off on the first missionary trip. It's likely uh, two years later. They were commended to what? The grace of God for the work. It did not say, and they were commended for the work. It is so easy in ministry to do ministry in the strength of self and flesh and not in grace. And we can produce results. But I would argue they won't be lasting results. Is that they said they commended them to what? Not just the work, but they were keenly aware that any work for God, any ministry has to be first based on the word and empowered by grace. That's why when McShane said that it's not great talents that God uses the most. It's great likeness to Jesus that he uses the most. And McShane had the understanding is the most important qualification for us as Christians to be effective in ministry is our personal holiness. It is our closeness to Christ. It is our likeness to Jesus. And so the early church knew that any effective ministry had to be bathed in grace that took the means of grace, the preached word, to do what only it could do. And what happens? They come back. 
In verse 27, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you see that the emphasis on their work in verse 27 is not what they did, but what God was doing? It was God who had done the work of grace among them. It was God who opened the door of faith to Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas were just jars of clay just carrying the message. As Spurgeon would say, they were beggars taking the bread of life to fellow beggars. So hence then we have the grace of God that unfolds in Romans 5 unto the giving of Jesus Christ, unto the giving of righteousness, unto the giving of justification, but it also is the grace of God that transforms lives. And friends, I would ask you as a Christian, is God transforming your life today by His grace? If I was to live in your home for a week, I won't. <laughs> would I walk away without, saying, without anyone saying a single word and see that the grace of God is transforming you? The best place to know what kind of Christian you are is in your home. Secondly, is your ministry for the Lord, your service for Him, is it a dull, dry service? You know what that's called? Graceless. Or is your ministry of the Word empowered by grace to where there's joy? There's a gladness that you get to carry the life-giving message of the gospel to your children, not only to your children, but also uh, in to your fellow brothers and sisters and to the community. Paul never lost sight of the transformation that occurred to him by grace. And he never lost sight that it was all of grace by which he did what he did. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. There's the identity in Christ. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them Though it was not I, but here's another example of those words. The grace of God that is with me. Friends, the only way that you'll be sustained in ministry is by the grace of God. The only time that you will keep yourself from throwing in the towel because it will get hard is by the grace of God. And if you are doing it in the strength of self, but you think it's by the grace of God, you will quit. Let's move on. Look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. Here's the third application of the grace of God beyond salvation. Not only does it produce visible fruit of changed lives, empowers word central ministry, but it undergirds the gospel. It undergirds the gospel and Christian living. Now, Paul in Acts chapter 20, I know I'm fracturing this text. We're not taking it. uh, I I want to do a a service by telling you the context. Paul is pouring out his heart to the Ephesian elders. He's departing them. He loves them. He loves them dearly. And in verse 24, but I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What was his ministry? What was the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul? Apart from the fact is that he wants to know Christ, that was his heartbeat. Philippians 3.10 was his heartbeat, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. But, but apart from that, what, what drove Paul every day? What was the centerpiece of his ministry? 
Look what he says. That I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. And here's those words again. Of the grace of God. The gospel is recognized as the grace of God. Now, you know, so I know I'm saved by grace. That's not what he says. He said it is the gospel of the grace of God. Again, from William Plummer, he said, quote, The gospel is itself called grace because it is the fruit of and evidence of God's unmerited goodness. Look at the gospel like this. The gospel is a reservoir. It's a reservoir of the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. And it's let loose by the grace of God. That's why it's so important that we never, we never attempt to preach the gospel apart from law and apart from grace. Is it this, this gospel of, of the grace of God, this gospel is encased in the grace of God. And when you preach it as such, then the grace of God is unleashed through the power of the gospel, pointing people to the life-giving message of the gospel. And you know what's so wonderful about this? This gospel of the grace of God, it's indestructible. It's indestructible. And it's not dependent upon the charismatic abilities of the messenger. Look around us. We're not earth changers. Now, maybe some of you are, and I'm not trying to look down upon you. I'm not. I'm a little kid that ran out of West Virginia and joined the Navy. But God takes jars of clay, broken vessels, and he fills them with the gospel of the grace of God. So that from us becomes the channels of the gospel of the grace of God. I was talking to someone who says, well, I just don't have all the answers when people ask me questions. I said, well, free yourself from that. You never will. And you don't have to. Well, so I don't know how to articulate. I said, do you know John 3.16? Oh, yeah, I do. You're good to go. Go tell people John 3.16. Now, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the need to be equipped. And we're committed to that here. But the reality is the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God, it's not dependent upon the skills of the messenger. Though important. We want our pastors, we want our teachers to be well-educated and articulate and gifted men. But friends, the woman at the well took the message of the gospel and went to Samaria and became a vehicle of revival. There's a plant. I thought this was so interesting. It's a good illustration of the gospel. There's a plant in Jamaica. It's called the life plant. It is almost impossible to kill or destroy any part of it. If you detach a leaf from the plant and suspend it by a string or a wire, it does not wilt and die. It sends out thread-like rootlets which absorb which absorbs moisture in the air and new leaves begin to grow i'd love to see that and the story went on the gospel of the grace of god is the life plant of the moral and spiritual world wherever the gospel goes it takes root in the lives and affections of broken people no climate 
howsoever surcharged it may be with sin, superstition, or entrenched in wrong, can kill the everlasting gospel. It truly is the spiritual Jamaica plant. And what is this grace? What is this grace of God? It is the grace of the gospel. The grace of God undergirds the gospel. But notice something else. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We have two more and we're done. Titus 2, chapter... Here's the second application. And this is so critical in our understanding of the Christian life. Is The Christian life isn't get saved by grace and then mature by performance. So often we fall prey to that. Perhaps you've had a good week. You read your Bible every day. Uh, you shared the gospel three or four times. You didn't get angry at someone, and you feel you're closer to God because you did all that. Well, what happens when you didn't read your Bible for three days? You yelled at your spouse. You were irritated with your children. Um, you didn't want to come to church Sunday. You was hoping you were sick enough not to come, but not sick enough to go out and do something you wanted to do. And you think, well, maybe God's mad at me because I didn't do this. Now, I said that it kind of sounds, sounds facetious, but in reality, do we not live by performance more than we should? You know what the grace of God does? The grace of God in the Christian life, it's called training grace. Training grace. You can never earn God's favor, you know that. <clears throat> and you can never lose God's favor, you know that. And that doesn't produce loose living it produces being in awe of the grace of God. Look at Titus 2.11. Here's that phrase again, the grace of God, the four words, the grace of God. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, here's the action. <clears throat> I should say the, the result. Here's what the grace of God that brings salvation, what it does. So it's beyond salvation. Paul, in writing to Titus, he would say, the grace of God trains or teaches, or instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let me ask you this question. Do you see the grace of God as training you even daily? Are you relying on the grace of God that saved you also to train you? Now this presupposes this training grace it presupposes two things. Number one, teachable students. That would be us, hopefully. Secondly, it presupposes that there is a persistent and patient, patient teacher. And is God not a patient and persistent teacher? You're enrolled, I told you numerous times, there's schools that God puts us in to teach us lessons. There's the school of waiting, very painful, Teach us patience. Teach us submission. There's the school of suffering, also, pain, also very painful, to teach us submission and patience. There's also the school of training. <clears throat> One of the things in the Navy, um, and you know my background, I worked in combat systems. And what we used to do is before we would deploy, we'd have months of workups We'd go out to sea to do war games. We would do drills, ad nauseum, constant drills, 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 drills. And where I worked in the Combat Information Center, there were war games. We would, we would, we would make these war games. 
And our combat system training team, I got to be a part of that. We would make up these war games to exercise the crew in. And we would go over these drills constantly. And we'd get it wrong, and we'd do it again. And we'd do it again and again and again for all those months leading up to deployment. Do you know why? It's because when you went in harm's way, wherever it was, is that what you had trained on just became reflex action in case. And you and there's all those drills we did in the Navy. Never once did the team or the team leader say, you know what, you're never going to get this, you're done. We just went back and did them more and more and more. That is exactly what the grace of God does in your life. How many of you have had to have the same lesson taught to you over and over and over and over in God's school of training? He'll never flunk you out. He'll constantly come to you with the grace of God that is training you. And notice, look at verse 12. It's training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So the question again is asked, is God training you? Are you experiencing the grace of God that is training you from the inside out? Not just the external uh, conduct You can have all the outward looking as a Christian and not even be a Christian. But are you inwardly being trained by the grace of God that you would live these lies that give evidence of change from the inside out? You see how marvelous God's grace is. Have have we even got a glimpse of what it is beyond salvation? The grace that produces visible change that impacts those around us The grace that empowers us to do ministry so we're sustained with joy. The grace that undergirds the gospel. That is the the very foundation of the gospel. And, And the grace that provides training for the Christian life. Are you being trained today? Are you maturing more and more in the disciplines of the Christian life because of training grace? Well, let's look at the next one, the fourth one. The fourth one. And we'll go through this one quickly and then we'll wind it down with the last one. The grace of God is personal. It's personal. The grace of God that Joy is is being trained by and the grace of God that saved her, that's not mine. The grace of God is individual and is personal. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5, I give thanks to my God always for you because, and here's the words again, the grace of God that was given you now, you is oftentimes in the scripture used as collective, but it's also used as individual. And Paul would use it both. 2 Corinthians 9, 14, the surpassing grace of God that was given or upon you. Friends, God's grace to me is not yours. You have to personally receive God's grace. You have to personally be the recipient of God's grace. You have to personally receive the person of grace, the Lord Jesus, John 1, 12. And so God's grace is so wonderful that it saves individuals. And it puts us under the family of God to where we grow corporately or we grow together. And then finally, and here's, here's the last one. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The grace of God reveals the heart of God. 
Now, we've seen that throughout all these manifestations of God's grace. But I think this one is so near and dear to all of us. Because in a crowd like this, maybe a hundred of us, I don't know. A lot of diversity among us. I talked about this last week, but you know, there's a, I can say this with 100% certainty. That unless Jesus comes back with 100% certainty, you are going to die. You are going to die. It could be today. And if you think about death, what is death? It is the greatest tool that the devil uses to keep people in bondage. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. Here's the heart of God. You know in salvation, you know what God is really doing? God is saving a people from himself. He is saving a people from the consequences of their own being undone. When Adam sinned, he told him beforehand, Adam, don't do this or you're going to die. And, and, and last week, you recall, how would that sound in Adam's ear? God said before he ate that if you eat this, you're going to die. Adam probably was scratching his head thinking, death? What is that? Oh, he knew as soon as he ate. But here God levels the consequence of, of disobedience, physical, spiritual, second death, eternal death. And what does God do out of his heart? He now comes to us in amazing grace and he undoes what the consequence that he gave us. And that is death. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see, and this is still another example of those four words, the grace of God. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, even the heart of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is amazing grace. 100% of us are going to die. And if you're not a Christian today, I have a question for you. How are you going to escape that? What's your answer to death? And you don't have one. You can say, well, I don't want to think about it. It doesn't make it go away. You're going to die. But here comes the rushing, mighty, mighty roar of amazing grace. God says, I'll send my son, and he will undo the consequences I put upon you by tasting death for every person. Friends, that's how amazing grace is. And does it not show the heart of God that he'd be willing to have his son absorb the consequences of what we deserve so that we could enjoy the fruit of amazing grace, justification, righteousness, reconciliation. And why does God want to do that? This is the last scripture and we'll, we'll close. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Why does God want to show us amazing grace? I said out of Ephesians chapter 1, it was to be unto the praise of the glory of His grace. But there's even more something specific of that. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And by the way, verses 4 through 9, count how many times the word grace appears. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, and here it is, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There it is. Why would God send his son to die? To take the penalty of death. Why? So that he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. That the God we rebelled against. And the God that we wanted nothing to do with in Adam. He would snatch us out of the pits of hell. He would snatch us out of our own folly. And he says, I want to display my grace to you. So that there's a time coming that I'm going to shower you with the immeasurable riches of my grace in my kindness towards you. If you're a Christian today, and you're not moved by the amazing grace of God, I beg you, get alone with God. You're not right. And perhaps I need to join you. Is that we need to be awakened to see the tremendous grace of God in all of its splendor and majesty that it would change us, that would empower us for ministry that would undergird the gospel, that it would train us to be like Christ, and that it would set us on the footing that someday he is going to shower us with immeasurable expressions of the riches of his grace in kindness. Next week, we'll look at verse 15 again, and we'll see the greatest manifestation of the grace of God And that is in the person of the Lord Jesus. Who was known as what? Full of grace. And Paul would say to us in verse 15. Much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. May God help us to be in all of amazing grace because it truly is amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your tremendous love to us, so undeserved. And Father, forgive us when we're not in all of grace. May that change even today, that you'd rekindle our hearts once again with the amazing truth of amazing grace. Thank you, Father, and help us not to forget these things. Help us to beg you to show us once again the splendor and the beauty of the Lord Jesus who is truly full of grace and of truth. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.